Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, March 27th, 2023. It seems recently on the show as if we are undermining many of the the core beliefs in the American system, undermining the shibboleths that support the infrastructure of American individualism and democracy, and perhaps the republic itself. Um, did a show recently with Alyssa Quart on why we need, at least according to Alyssa, to liberate ourselves from the American dream. In her new book, Bootstrap, Liberating Ourselves from the American Dream, she suggests that um, the idea of the self-made American male is uh, constructed and is essentially untrue. Last week, we did a show with Kerry Howley, um, who denies the idea of a singular truth in what she calls deep state America. Her new book, Bottoms Up and the Devil Laughs, A Journey Through the Deep State, is getting a lot of great reviews. It's a marvelous read. Very challenging and disorientating. And uh, just as Howley's and uh, Quartz books are disorienting, uh, Good Books comes in threes. We have a third interesting book by my guest today, Brian Lowry. Um, Selfless, The Social Construction of You. Brian Lowry, PhD. I, I, I use that word carefully because it's on the cover of the book. Teaches <laughs> at Stanford Business School. And is going after perhaps the third, the third leg in the American stool, the idea of the self. Brian is joining us from Portland, Oregon. He normally lives uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, teaches at Stanford. Brian, the idea of selfless, the social creation of you, you're certainly not the first person to make this point. Um, is there a core polemic here? Are you suggesting that most people are deluded about their own individualism? Uh, I think deluded is a strong word, but sure, we can use it. I think most people... Yeah, believe... you're more than welcome to use it on my show. <laughs> I think uh, most people have the experience of themselves as a singular soul inside their body. And that's not... I don't think that's true. Um, so in that sense, it's a, a fiction. I think the self as we normally experience it is a, a fiction. And sometimes it's useful, but it's a fiction. Is it, Brian, a convenient fiction? Is it a political fiction? Has it been used? in the history of the American Republic to shore up certain class or gendered or racial groups? Um, as it's certainly political. I think that it underlies not just in America, but it underlies um, a capitalist system that's based on individual greed um, as a primary motive um, for society and for the economy. Um, it, it's also, I mean, in a more positive sense, it's useful in the idea of uh, liberal democracy, where individuals are are deciding um, how they're going to be governed. So this is the obvious question, Brian. Uh, everyone will ask you it. The book's out tomorrow, so mm. I'm sure you've got to get used to this kind of question. Uh, people are going to say, "Well, who who are you, Brian Lowry? If if you're not an individual, where's the <laughs> self in the Brian? Uh, are you um, a consequence of your descendants? Are you?" 
sort of epistemologically or ontologically communitarian? Where, where, where is where is the Brian Lowry and Brian Lowry? Where does it begin uh, and where does it end? Oh, that's a great question. Um, actually, that's a lot of a lot of good questions. Where does it begin? Well, it certainly begins before I show up physically. Um, I exist as an ongoing part of a longer story. That's certainly the case. Um, we all, I think, uh, enter a story already being told, but it seems as if the story begins with us. And that's just obviously not true. Like my, my parents had all sorts of things going on in their lives before I showed up that led to my arrival. Um, and now I impact the people around me. Where am I? I am in all the relationships that revolve around me and all the interactions I have. That's, I think that's where I am. I am physically a locus of all those relationships. Um, so I don't exist. I don't think inside my head, looking out, controlling some, controlling the machinery. Like that's, I think most people now accept uh, that that kind of dualism doesn't, isn't quite right, uh, even though it feels that way. And so if you are willing to deny that kind of dualism, then the question becomes where, where are you then? And I don't think people really think of themselves as um, a pure physical thing. And so if it's not that, then what is it? Ontologically, as you said, what are we? We are the relationships and the interactions we have, I think. You mentioned your parents, Brian. Um, some people are adopted. Some people aren't brought up by parents. Some people mm -hmm. hate their parents. Some people love their parents but decide to invent or reinvent themselves as the reverse of their parents. Are you suggesting that whether we like it or not, we're inevitably products culturally, politically of our parents? Tell me about your parents. Where are they from? What do they do? Yeah, my parents are um, both born and raised in Mississippi um, along the coast. Um, they... Um, they now, my, my dad lives in Chicago. My mom lives back and she moved back to Mississippi. Uh, my mom's a school teacher for most of her professional life. And my father worked for the phone company um, for, for most of at least almost all of my life. Um, and so am I a product of them? Of course. Um, I don't, whether you like the people you engage with or not is less relevant than if you engage with them. Brian, I, I don't know anything about your family, but I'm guessing not every member of your family from Mississippi ended up uh, as a professor at Stanford <laughs> Business School. What, what about the other kids, the ones still back in Mississippi, the ones in Chicago who haven't mm. achieved what you've achieved? Um, what about them? You mean, like, it's, what's the question? Like, why aren't they in well, the, the question family? is, what makes... Brian Lowry, the professor at Stanford, whereas others of your relatives, your cousins, brothers and sisters uh, may not have quite realized themselves, if you think of yourself mm -hmm. as realizing yourself, maybe you do or you don't, in that same way. For some people might hold you up as the model of American individualism. You made it. You, you were from reasonably um, uh, ordinary roots, middle class, lower middle class, mm -hmm. you're uh, uh, and you've made it to be a professor at Stanford, isn't? Aren't you a model of 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 what you can realize if you work hard and and have a bit of luck? <laughs> um, am I a model? I think, sure. I, I would say I'm a model of what's possible, but not because of what I've made, and not because of um, just my hard work. So I think 
Did I work hard? Sure. And do I have some talents? I certainly hope so. Um, but a lot of people have talents and a lot of people work hard. I think there's so much serendipity um, and, and people can call it luck, but I think I, I'd call it something like the social context that swirls around us dictates and determines where we end up. Um, and that's true for me, just like it is for everyone else. So in that sense, yes, I'm a model, but I don't think I'm a model of some sense of the American dream. If you work hard and persevere and are talented, then you will succeed. I mean, I think that's um, that, that seems to me with just a little bit of thought laughable. Laughable, in, in, but not in a funny way. No, no, not in a funny way. I mean, it's uh, I guess, again, it's a useful myth in terms of motivation, perhaps. Um, and I do think that hard work and some talent is necessary. But the confusion is when people start to behave as if that's sufficient. Explain that. The confusion is when people behave as if that's self-sufficient. So when people behave as if the world really is a big Darwinian race and that the, the smart, the hardworking survive and they're the deserving ones, the ones who don't acknowledge what luck, fate, circ uh, chance. Yeah. I mean, I think about, you know, when a child is born, they have no, no control over who their parents are. Let's assume that's true. <laughs> and, but still, then, then they, uh, sorry to jump in here. Brian. Yeah. I mean, then they're the, you, you can't separate them from their parents. So the idea of them having no control, they are, as you say, their parents' offspring. Mm -hmm. And as soon as they come into the world, they normally are surrounded by their parents. 100%. And so for that reason, to claim that their, their individual effort and hard work somehow separate from others dictates their outcomes seems hard to maintain if you accept that they are a product of a story that was being told before they arrived. This is an ongoing debate, Brian. You're certainly not the first or the last person to jump into this debate. We did a show uh, a few years ago with Joseph Henry, a professor at uh, Harvard University, mm. wrote a book called The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. He's essentially arguing that because of certain chance events in the history of Roman Catholicism, the West evolved in a certain way, a certain individualistic way. Mm -hmm. This debate may have been begun by the German sociologist uh, Max Weber, who wrote The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism in 1904 and 5, that endlessly debates why the West won or why the West became more prosperous and dynamic compared to other societies. Would you just write off people like Henrik in this idea of the West and individualism? Is that itself a myth? Um, I don't know what <clears throat> write off means. So I would say that... Dismiss. Just say they're wrong. Um, I don't know what wrong would be here. I guess what I would say is they... Is there individualism in terms of the, the ethos of the West? Certainly. Does that individualism, does it contribute to how the West functions? Sure. Does that mean it's true that it reflects the reality of of social life? No, those two those things are not. They don't have to all align, right? So it could be the case that yes, we behave as if individualism is true. Yes, that has consequences for the way society structures and functions. And simultaneously, no, it may not be true in some deeper ontological sense. As you suggest in the book, this 
thesis has profound, radical, disturbing implications on power structures, race, gender, uh, economics. Um, along with being a professor at uh, the Stanford Business School, you're also the uh, co-director uh, of a new institute at Stanford, the Institute on Race. How does this play into the ongoing, endless debate in America on race? Is this intimately bound up or is this a, a parallel issue? Um, I think it's intimately bound up. Um, so race, I think, I don't know that anyone, well, actually that's not true. I think that most reasonable people accept that race is a social construction. Um, and if you think about race beyond just the kind of parochial way that it's understood in the United States, um, there are different understandings even in um, in parts of North America, right? So um, I don't, you know, if you think of the Caribbean, the Caribbean understands race differently than that North, you know, the Northern Hemisphere understands race differently than they, we do in the United States. Um, in Brazil, it's understood differently than the United States. So I think that as you think about relationships and identities as a construction of relationships that exist in communities, then yeah, the idea of race is intimately bound up in the way I'm talking about the self. I assume, of course, that if, if we, you would be in support of if, if, if we took up your thesis that we are all social constructions, this would help America's bloody, profound, historic divisions on quote-unquote race. As you say, it's a social construction. But in many people's, most people's minds, it still is there. It's not a pure invention. How would this help America's very bad race history? Um, I think we would recognize the, the degree to which race is like many other social constructions, that there's nothing deeply essentialist about it. I don't, but I should be clear, like, I don't imagine that this would be taken up, taken up as a way to understand race in large part because I think it would um, challenge communities that are deeply um, ingrained in the way that many people see themselves. So it's, I think, a challenge, a challenge to race, given its importance in the United States, is a deep challenge to how many people understand themselves. And that kind of challenge is tough to, to deal with. Um, so that, I mean, you know, I, I guess the other thing you should know is when I think about race, I think very broadly, like I, th I think of race as uh, an essentialization of group differences. So I would include, I think ethnicity becomes racialized. I think caste becomes racialized. I think in some places people try to racialize class. Um, so I think of race as a construction that's treated as an inherent property of individuals. Like when you take a social group and you treat it as inherent property of an individual, um, I think of that as, as race. So I mean race incredibly broadly here. Marxists would go the other way. Marxists would say that race, you use this word essentialize. I'm not entirely sure what you mean, but my understanding is that um, for Marxists, class is everything. Are you suggesting that ultimately race or this broad definition of race is everything in, in the America of the 2020s? Um, everything. That's a, that's, a, that's a big word. Um, 
I don't well, know most that. things then. I mean, in terms of how we define ourselves and this social creation of ourselves is, is there's always a, a racialized element, uh, even if that racialized element is broader than simply thinking of ourselves as white or black. Yeah, I think in the United States, it's hard to it's hard to um, go without race, or hard to um, it's hard to engage in the U.S. culture and not have an understanding of yourself as raced or the person that you're in, engaging with as racialized. I think that's tough. Yes, um, I don't know that I would say it's everything. I think I'd put I'd say I think three different three general categories. There's generally race in the United States. Gender and age; those things are 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 critical to. What about some people might want to add sexuality? Um, yeah, I think so. When I say gender, I should be clear that that's a complex, complex um, system of identities, right? So, I think it's gender. I think it's physical sex. I think it's sexual orientation. Like that, it's just a a, a complex of of things there. Where does the social creation of you as a myth, where does it end, Brian? Are, are we creating a hall of mirrors, an endless hall of mirrors, where there is no, if there is no self, perhaps this accounts for the increased anxiety, the sense of purposelessness, alienation, atomization, mental illness? Is there a connection between the two? Or do you think, in contrast, that if we could come to terms with our absence of a self that would actually strengthen our mental health. Um, I think a coherent self is, is um, core to um, good mental health. So I don't know that by the way, when I say selfless, I don't know that what I'm suggesting is that we eliminate self. I just think we should um, reconsider what we think the self is. So, and uh, when I say essentialized, by the way, we're going back, I'll go back to that just for a second. What I mean is the sense that <clears throat> there's a soul in there and that soul is marked by, in a case, in some cases, race. Um, I think that the self, as most people think about it, is is magical. It's like a, a soul in there. I don't know where that comes from or, you know, people, there's a creator or whatever. Some people want to maybe think of DNA as a soul. I, I don't know. But I'm I'm denying that that thing, that magical thing. And I'm saying that there is a self. It's just that the self is social. So it's not that there isn't one. It's just not what most people imagine it to be. Brian, we all talk to ourselves. Um, are you suggesting that when we talk to ourselves, when we think, when we mull stuff over, when we can't sleep at night or when we're trying to think about our future, our relationship. We should be thinking somehow socially. We should be skeptical of there being a single self, just as Kerry uh, Howley suggests that we should be skeptical of a, a singular truth in deep state America. Oh, certainly we should be skeptical um, of a singular self. Um, but it's, the, the, you know, it's, the problem with this is that the phenomenology, the experience of, of being a self, at least for me, and I assume for most people in the West, is so at odds with what I'm saying that it's, it's sometimes difficult to wrap your mind around. Um, but in terms of, again, your question, certainly we should be skeptical of a singular self. Um, that we are, 
Certainly, for example, there's research that talks about self and other, where we actually can incorporate people into our sense of self. There are demonstrations, empirical demonstrations, where you can, you can create confusion between your face and someone else's face, where you really start to incorporate other people's face into your perception of your own face. So this is not, I just want to be clear, this is not just um, philosophy. There, there is empirical science that suggests that these things are true, that we do and can incorporate others into our sense of self. One of the intriguing things, Brian, about your new book is that this is a, a debate that's taken place forever within philosophy departments. Mm -hmm. You don't teach philosophy. You teach at the business school at Stanford, which is probably the most elite university with Harvard in the world. And its business school has generated generations of millionaires and billionaires. How, how do you expect this book and these issues to be addressed within Stanford Business School? You're going to have colleagues who will probably disagree with you. Oh, I hope I do. Um, if everyone agrees and you're not saying anything too interesting, I guess. Um so I should say I'm a psychologist by training and I come to this not from philosophy or from business per se, but um, as a psychologist. And when I talk about these issues in the book, I, I often reference psychological studies that provide evidence for the claims that are made. And in terms of teaching at a business school or how people will respond to it, um, I think of Stanford Business School, the Graduate School of Business as a social science school. Um, we help people understand the society they exist in. We help them understand how business functions. Um, and as someone who teaches in the organizational behavior group, what I focus on is how people exist in organizations. And to the extent that this book is about how people exist um, broadly, then it's relevant for how people exist in organizations. Brian Stanford has produced some of the most successful entrepreneurs and startup companies, Google, of course. Uh, the one that come to mind. We had a, three professors on the show recently from Stanford who have a new book out uh, suggesting a, a moral way to teach entrepreneurs. Is in your book and the thesis in the book Selfless, is there something implicit for entrepreneurs if they recognize that their social creation, they'd be more willing to give back? So the next Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or Larry Page, or, uh, or, 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 or uh, Sergey Brin, once they've made their billions, they're recognized more of a, a, a social obligation? Um, I don't know about that. What I would say is what's implicit is you should understand that your, your existence in the, the larger society at the very beginning, not after you've made your billions, <laughs> that I hope what's implicit is that the health of the community you exist in is key to the success of your business as well. And so as you think about your business as an entrepreneur, you should think about it as um, an element in the larger society. So it's less about how you should behave as an individual once you've made your billions than how you engage with the society you exist in from the start. We've done lots of books, lots of shows on self-help. One with a, a woman, um, the Book of Boundaries, Melissa Urban, set the limits that will set you free about being self, uh, establishing the self and then understanding what it means to be selfish, setting limits. If though, and, and maybe I'm re-asking this same question, if, if we come up with your social definition of the self, does that mean that we should... Being selfish is actually a good thing. 
because it simultaneously makes us also uh, collective in our thinking? Um, sure. If if you let go of the fiction that your interests somehow are the interest of some individual inside your head and, and see yourself and understand yourself as a social creation, then being selfish is not problematic at all, I don't think. Another famous, I think, famous graduate of... Um... Of, of Stanford is a young man called Sam Altman. He's the CEO of OpenAI. They are pioneering GPT-4 AI. How does all this new technology, Brian, play out in your argument, particularly the way in which we seem to be increasingly with new technologies like GPT, uh, generative AI, outsourcing ourselves to machines? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's a great question. I think um, about technology and what, I, what I'm concerned about when I see these things is more the um, atomization of society. By that, I mean, I'll take instead of AI, let's think about AR, um, augmented reality. This is the kind of dystopian thing that I, I worry about, that, you know, we buy glasses or, I don't, you know, there's something, we have contact lenses and we pay for different experiences of the world we live in. So you're walking around, you go out to lunch, and depending on how much money the people around you have, they're existing in a different world than the one you're in. Um, and that absence of a shared understanding or shared experience of the world makes it difficult to connect, um, more difficult to connect than it is even now across boundaries. And that I worry about in terms of how society continues to function effectively when we don't have a shared basis of not just our perceptions of reality in the sense of what we believe to be true, but our, our literal perceptions we walk out in the world that we see as a different world. That's the sort of thing that'll, that I worry about. I think that is a version of um, social media on steroids, you know, but I, you know, the idea that AI is going to become human and we're going to give it all the functions of humanity that I'm less concerned about right now. Yeah, this social construction of AI is something that was been addressed by a lot of our guests. Meredith Broussard, who teaches at NYU, she has a new book out, More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech. She makes this argument that we have to create software that reflects the truth rather than, I guess, an America of the self, the strong self. I'm assuming you're on the same page as Broussard. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, this is the when you say reflects the truth, that's always hard. But to the extent that we can do that, yes, um, I'd be 100% on board with that. What would you say uh, to Brian, to people listening to this, who are in two minds? They're going to be people who reject what you're saying entirely. They're going to be people who embrace it. But I think most people will be a little ambivalent. They'll understand that there's some truth, but they also have a strong sense of their self. Um, what would you say to them about building more of a social creation of oneself? How do you do that? You're a psychologist, as you say. Does this take place then within our head, ironically? Um, no, I think here's what I would say about the book, by the way. So there'll be people who embrace it and we reject it. That's fine. Um, the book is, is not just not prescriptive. It, does, it doesn't tell you what you should do or how you should be. 
I mean, what I hope is that people read the book and it, let it wash over them and then they will decide how to engage with the material. Um, and so what do I ask? What, what should people do? This is, again, where I, I tend not to be prescriptive, but I think there's the possibility of a degree of um, calm that can be produced if you let go of the sense that you're responsible for everything that you are or you perceive yourself to be in your head. That as you go out in the world, you you don't you're not engaging with people in the sense of truly connecting with them. You're just bumping into other islands that exist purely in their head. There is something comfortable about or easing about um, letting go or relaxing that belief a bit. I think it's easier to have compassion for yourself when you see yourself as a creation of your environment. I think it's easier to have compassion for other people when you understand them in the same way. And so I, I, what I hope, I hope that people have that sense of um, a, a little bit of relief, but more importantly, if, if, it, if someone reads this book and they stop and just consider their lives, I'd consider that success, whether they accept the ideas or not. This is an abstract argument. As I said, it's the kind of argument that's been going on amongst philosophers for many years. Some people might say, well, it's kind of interesting, but not particularly relevant to our reality. How important do you think it is? We've got another Larry, I'm not sure if he's a relative. Wesley Larry is coming on the show in a couple of months talking about his new book, American White Lash, The Resurgence of Racial Violence in Our Time. Mm. Again, it's not news that there are heightened racial tensions, that we have certain politicians who seem to be increasingly calling overtly for racial violence of one kind or another. How important in a broad sense for the future of America, Brian, is your argument? I, I understand that not everyone's going to buy the whole thing, lock, sink and barrel for 100 percent. But but why is this an important book? Well, if you want to talk about American politics, I'll, I'll just I'll give one example of where it, it contacts the politics. When we think about issues of immigration, for example, uh, my argument is that one of the reasons that immigration is problematic for some people is it's a challenge to their understanding of what America is and in challenging what America is a challenge to who they are, if they see themselves as American and the relationships on which they base that sense of self. So if we understand that, like, how would we, how do we deal with that? How do we think about that? Like, I don't, again, the, my goal is not to provide the solutions. It's to get, have people ask different questions. Um, and in terms of the novelty, like I look, I think we talk about social science, we talk about philosophy. There's very, very few points that are, purely that are truly novel that have never been made before or things we've never seen historically. The question is, how does this conversation engage with the moment that we're living right now? And I think that right now, how we think about ourselves, how we engage with our communities is becoming um, much, much more important in not only domestic politics, but as we think about the world and some of the biggest challenges facing humanity right now. You think about climate change, for example, you think about global migration. These are questions of who do we care for? Who's like us? What does it mean to be us? What do we guard? What relationships do we value? Who are we? And so I think this is an incredibly important time to ask these questions, to have people consider them. Uh